Are you passionate about blueberries and want to take an active role in making them the world's favorite fruit? Well, you might be the perfect fit for USHBC's newly launched Blueberry Industry Leadership Program. Applications are now open through April 11th. Visit ushbc.org leadership to learn more and see if this program is right for you. Where does the future lie for a company that's been in the berry business for the last 100 years? I love coming to work here. And I think that's what I was trying to create, a place that everybody would love coming to work every day. And, you know, people see our treehouse from the road and they just, they walk in the place and they see our lobby with a forest of trees. It's, yeah, it just kind of wows people. And that's pretty much what I was going for, just to have a unique place for folks to come every day. Today, I sit down with Gary Wisnaski of Wish Farms to talk about his family's 100-year journey in the berry business and what keeps him focused and optimistic about the next 100 years. This copyrighted podcast is presented by the U.S. Highbush Blueberry Council. The opinions and views shared by those of non-paid guests on the business of blueberries are those of our guests and do not represent the views, positions, or policies of the USHBC. The blueberry industry is like no other, passionate, resilient, and innovative. This podcast is your source for the latest information on the management, markets, research, and technology related to blueberry production. This is the business of blueberries. Here's your host, president of the U.S. Highbush Blueberry Council, Casey Cronquist. But well, welcome back to another episode of The Business of Blueberries, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to the blueberry industry. Now, we sure had a great time in Florida for our spring meetings a couple of weeks ago, and it was so nice to see so many people in person bringing back that family feeling that is so unique to blueberries. And one of those many conversations we had as a group that I genuinely enjoyed was with today's guest, Gary Wisnaski of Wish Farms. Gary's family has an incredible story in the berry business from pushcart peddling in the 1920s to berry robotics in the 2020s. Many of you may be familiar with Wish Farms, but there's a lot more to the story that we're going to dive into today. So Gary, welcome to the business of blueberries. Thank you, Casey. Yeah, it's really great being here with you today. For those who didn't get to go on the tour, I thought this podcast would create a really great way for people to get to know you and understand some of the things that those folks who did go on that tour got to hear. And so our audience obviously is a, a larger group of people who tune in to the business of blueberries, hopefully each and every week. And I just thought, you know, it would be great to have you on the show for you to share a little bit about your hundred year old company, your family business, how you started. So I thought we could just start off by diving into that story because I find it so fascinating on how Wish has come to be where it's at today. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that family history and what led you to where you are today. Well, we're 100 years old this year. Uh, we're celebrating our centennial, founded in 1922 by my grandfather, Harris Wisnatsky. The 1922 founding year, though, that was the founding year of the partnership with his partner in New York City, Daniel Nathel. Before that, though, he was pushing push carts around New York City, Lower East Side, Lower West Side, uh, selling fruits and vegetables during those times. He had guys that started working for him. He developed a business around that with a fleet of push carts. So he immigrated from Ukraine. He actually was in Kiev in the Ukraine, which was part of Russia at that time. And he left because of the oppressive rule of the czar. 
And when he came over this country, he came with a little bit of money in his pocket. So he bought a push cart or rented a push cart, maybe. I'm not sure exactly. But he started selling fruits and vegetables on the Lower East Side and Lower West Side of uh, New York City. Later, he joined forces with a push cart peddler, Daniel Nathel, and they started buying car lots of produce off the auction market in New York City. And sometimes they'd buy more than their push carts could sell. And that's how the wholesale business started. They started jobbing that excess out. So it was in 1922 when they set up a storefront on Washington Street Market on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And that's where the wholesale business started. And at that time, it was Wisnatsky and Nathel. Now, he had a buyer in the 1920s here in Plant City, Florida, where they were buying strawberries at that time and other fruits and vegetables also. But strawberries was a big thing here in Plant City. And he was getting them shipped back up to New York City. It was in 1929 when he came down to Florida and saw the area, met growers and decided he was going to come down and set up shop every winter and start buying the berries himself and shipping them back to his partner. But we've been in the berry business now for 100 years, or actually maybe a little more than that, but 1922 was when the partnership actually started. Blueberries is a little bit new to our game, and it was in actually about 1992 when we began marketing local blueberries here in Florida. And those early years in the blueberry industry, it was all little mom and pop growers. And it's kind of interesting because it kind of mimics what happened back in my grandfather's time with the strawberries. Back then in the 1920s, it was all one, two, three acre sized farms. The size of those farms was basically dictated by the size of the family because the larger your family, the more kids and family members you had to pick the strawberries. But the blueberry industry here in Florida kind of started out the same way, where there was a lot of little small acreages of blueberries. They were fetching really high prices back in the 1990s, because Florida was, at the time they came in, there weren't very many in the marketplace at all. So that's evolving, just like our strawberry industries evolved. Uh, whereas the you know scope and the size of the farms is scaling up and getting bigger and, and bigger. When was that transition to blueberries for Wish? When did you guys find yourself jumping into that part of the business? I actually, there was a couple small growers that just had a couple acres each that were having them marketed by somebody else and wasn't happy. And we said, well, you know, we have all these berry customers. <laughs> We've got all these chain stores that we're selling strawberries to, there's no reason we can't sell a few blueberries too. So it started out really, really small. I mean, just a few hundred boxes at a time. It was um, nothing like it is today with the millions of um, pounds that we sell. Yeah. How is it today? I mean, what has been that transition both in, you know, I guess under your leadership with blueberries, give us a little bit of what's Wish like today. So we're now a year-round marketer of all berries. And back about 15 years ago or 10 years ago, we focused strictly on berries because before that we were selling all the local vegetables and other things that were being grown here in central Florida. But we made a a very um, thought-out effort to move into just being berry people because we figured out we were really good at selling berries and that's why we went in that direction and we figured we needed to be a year round at that time. Uh, J.C. Kleinard, who is our um, COO at the time back in the mid-2000s, he started you know, showing up at different blueberry events in different parts of the country 
and we just started making relationships with growers and so we just built on what we already had our berry business and the blueberries we basically just bolted it on so we're we're growers as well as marketers here in florida we've got an organic blueberry farm we also grow quite a few strawberries we've got the largest contiguous strawberry farm i believe in the world and since this podcast goes out across a lot of different countries it'll be interesting to see if anybody challenges that we've got about 800 acres of strawberries all in one contiguous farm so there's other farms that are maybe growing more than that but they're not in one contiguous piece of land so and we've got about 2,000 acres total there under our management. Some we own, some we lease. And then how does that production balance out with any blueberries that you're growing directly? Yes. Yeah, so our blueberry production's actually in a little town called Alturas, uh, which is just a little bit east of Plant City. Our actual production that we grow ourselves is relatively small. We have blueberries we're sourcing from a lot of different places. We're sourcing from uh, South America, as well as some from Mexico, some from British Columbia. So we're sourcing blueberries from all over the Americas uh, to be a year-round supplier. Well, I want to talk a little bit about how you've personally had to handle that growth. Uh, I think we've had the benefit of seeing, you know, just the the facility development you've had to go through during our recent tour there in Plant City. But before we do, I want to take a quick break for our crop report. Now, I'm sure you're all aware we've been transitioning our supply to the Northern Hemisphere, and we've begun inviting our area reps from our different growing regions to report on their harvest volumes as they come in. So here, once again, is your blueberry crop report. It's time now for your blueberry crop report, an update on crop conditions and markets from important blueberry growing areas. Today, you'll hear from Ken Patterson in Florida, Luis Vegas in Peru, Mario Ramirez in Mexico, and a special report from John Bennett in Georgia regarding the recent Southeast freeze event. This was recorded on March 23rd, 2022. Well, hello, everybody. Picking is normally in all regions. The crop seems to be a little ahead of schedule, but cooler weather this weekend will probably bring bring it back to a normal time frame. The south and southern regions are probably a week away from peaking, and the northern region has just begun continuous picking and will not peak for approximately three weeks from now. Inclement weather is approaching tonight and it is predicted to rain all day tomorrow, so there will not be much movement until the weekend. Labor does not appear to be an issue anywhere and the fruit quality has been excellent up to this point. Bird pressure is sporadic, but more prevalent in the northern region. The USDA is reporting 1.54 million pounds of conventional and 50,000 pounds of organic fruit has been shipped out of Florida as of March 19th. And that's this week's summary for the Florida crop. In our area in Georgia, half the crop is unprotected, half the high bush, before there's some of the later high bush anyway, and of the uh, protected crop, we probably lost half of that. And so, the folks that I'm talking to say that we probably maybe have a 40% of the harvest crop. And on the rabbit eyes, it's a little too soon to tell because we don't think we've seen all the damage from the from the freeze event. But it could be could be as bad as about 40% left, or it could be as good as we got 60% left. It's somewhere around a 40 or 60% of the crop left. And 
one of the issues when you we do a freeze like this is if you have fruit and you're going to hand pick fruit, how much you're going to have to grade out to be able to get because it's going to be damaged on it. And the high bush is, is pretty cut and dry. We pretty well know that it's going to only be a 35 to 40 percent of the crop left. And the rabbit eyes, a little early to tell yet, just how I've got a field of the rabbit eyes that was completely wiped out. It was just further out and it got really cold. And uh, but then I've got some other fields on the rabbit eyes that look like there's some fruit in there. Well, we can't tell what the quality is going to be and we can't tell for sure. Just, but just most people say we're going to have half a rabbit eye crop, man, maybe 40% of them. Now, that's general. There are fields that only off 15, 20% if they had really good water. And you know, if you hazed a lot of your rabbit eyes, then you may have a little more crop there left because the blooms was a little bit later. But that's the best guess. Hi everyone, here Mario with the Mexican Bluegrass Report for the 10th week of 2022. This week we exported a total of 7 million and 700,000 pounds to all the world. From this volume, the 95% goes to North America. And 18% of the total exportation was organic blueberries. And in frozen blueberries, this week we sent 55,000 pounds to the United States. And the total volume for 2022 is 353,000 pounds. That means 30% less volume respecting 2021. For the full season, we have exported 76 million and 300,000 pounds to all the world. That's all in my report. Hope to see you next week. Good morning. This is Luis with the crop report from Peru up until the end of week 11, which is the week ending on March 20. Up until week 11 of, of season 21, 22 for Peru. Uh, Peru has shipped a total of 487 million pounds of fresh blueberries worldwide, representing a growth of 37% in volume versus the previous season. From this overall volume, 55% has been shipped to the US. What happened during week 11? Uh, well, a total of 890,000 pounds were shipped. 75% uh, of this volume was shipped to the US, which represent 660,000 pounds, which are expected to arrive at the US market during the first days of April. So that's the report from Peru for week 11 of 2022. Thank you. Well, thanks so much to our busy growers who take time to participate in these reports. As a reminder, you can go to the new USHBC website where you'll find our data and insight center to see more of what's happening in our blueberry industry. We have added a lot more features to this dashboard, including USDA shipping price, movement, retail category performance, Nielsen monthly retail sales report. And just recently, we added the FAS export report. So make sure you go to ushbc.org forward slash data to check that out. So let's get back to our featured conversation with Gary. Gary, we talked a little bit about your background with WISH, and I want to kind of start looking at where WISH is today. We had the opportunity as a group to visit you there in your facility, and we just got done talking about that growth you went through, which I think kind of required you to get some space for all of the folks and the growth that you've been experiencing at WISH. And so, you know, I would say 
I haven't seen anything quite like Wish in the berry business or the flower business, maybe in agriculture, generally speaking, in terms of the way you're building a culture, a team culture and a company there and somewhat anchored around a culture and a facility. Again, I don't think I've ever been in a business that had a slide going from the second floor to the first floor, but it's more than that. Um, For those that were on our tour, I think they were just impressed with the facility in whole. But just to come back to that slide for a moment, and maybe you knew this, Gary, maybe you knew this when you created the slide inside of Wish, but all walks of life we had on that tour, you know, coming from a number of different places, different ages, different places in their career positions. Not one person came down that slide and didn't smile. Everybody who went down that slide, it just seemed like they were a kid again. There was cheering for those who were coming that took the courage. You know, some people may have not felt comfortable coming down a two-story slide, but a bunch of adults in a business environment. It struck me just how much people really enjoyed that opportunity to, to slide down a slide at Wish. And maybe that was by design, but I thought I'd let you speak to what was the vision in all those things that we saw. And I I hope we can share some pictures in our show notes for people to see directly, or maybe you have a video we can link to. But but if you haven't seen something like this or you haven't been to Wish, I thought I'd just bring you on to kind of describe what it is that you've created there and why. So my daughter just actually joined me for lunch today in our cafe where we serve lunch for all our employees here and they just pay a small nominal fee for uh, cover some food costs. But anyways, I was talking to my daughter and uh, I said, you know, Elizabeth, I just I love coming to work here. And I think that's what I was trying to create a place. And this was pre-pandemic when we you know, designed everything and came up with a lot of these crazy ideas. I just wanted a place that everybody would love coming to work every day and, you know, just really want to come to work. And my HR director, Jessica Calderon, she, um, shortly after we moved in, she goes, you know, you've really made my job easy. <laughs> so <laughs> hiring people to work here, we, we had an opening for our receptionist position when we first, um, began having a receptionist here and we had over a thousand applicants. So we really weeded it down so people see our tree house from the road and they just they walk in the place and they see our lobby with a forest of trees it's yeah it just kind of wows people and that's pretty much what i was going for just to have a unique place for folks to come every day yeah i could see where a thousand applications could come pouring in you know obviously you know you've got your theme and maybe you could talk a little bit about how that ties into uh, your brand so I mean, is there somebody behind you that's behind this? I mean, is it really your vision of the brand, which includes the Pixie, all the way through? You can see the theme thread through the building in terms of design. It's, uh, it really is a, a neat connection all the way through your brand. So talk to me a little bit about how that creative got going for you. Thank you. So I'll share this. I shared it with the group the other day. Back in about 2009, we had our brand, which at the time was Wishnatsky Farms, and it's a lot to say. <laughs> we did a brand survey of 400 people in the state of Florida that were shopping at stores that we supplied, and only one person out of 400 could name our brand, Wishnatsky Farms, unaided. And that one person misspelled our name. So that's when I knew we had an opportunity. When I decided to 
changed the name to Wish Farms, I first went to my family and told them what I was planning to do. And my wife said, you know, that doesn't seem right. You're going to change your name of your grandfather's company, your family name, Wishnatsky. And I thought about that for a little bit. And I said, wait a minute. I said, back in the 1920s, when my grandfather first came to Florida, not one grower, not one person here could pronounce Wishnatsky. <laughs> they all just called him Mr. Wish. So changing the name to Wish Farms was kind of a natural transition. But the Pixie, that that was created by a marketing firm, Chapel Roberts in Tampa. They came up with several different concepts. There was one that I saw. It was a primitive version of our Misty the Garden Pixie that we have today. Andy Gutierrez, who's my vice president of operations here, Andy helped refine that design, and he actually did some of the artwork to get it to what it is now. And I actually came up with the name of Misty the Garden Pixie because it kind of flowed. I was going to call her Trixie the Garden Pixie, but I thought Trixie might sound a little trashy. (laughs) (laughs) Trixie was out. Trixie was out. Oh, that's too funny. Well... I love the connection back to back to your grandfather, the idea that they were already calling him Mr. Wish. So there's still a great history there. Yeah, thanks, Casey. You know, the, the growth that we've experienced, you get to certain plateaus in growth and you, you add people and then you grow another leg up and then you add more people. But there's one really key thing to any firm that's growing. You've really got to realize that you have to have processes. You know, when I started out in the business, you know, it was only a couple of us that were selling. There was only a couple people in our accounting department. And my business coach kind of compared the transition like you're a jazz band and everybody knows what the other player is going to do. You, you know, one player gets up and you know, a saxophone player plays something and everybody joins in and it all works as when you're a jazz band. But when you get bigger, uh, like we have, you really have to become an orchestra. So if you're, when you're an orchestra, you have to play from a sheet of music and you know you can't have the tuba player just jumping up and playing a riff and in the middle of a, a piece. So we've become an orchestra. So processes is a big part of what we're doing. We have an intern, which is actually my wife's um, nephew. His name is Derek and he's here helping us right now. And um, he's found a program that we can get all our processes in because we've had all these processes, but they were kind of scattered around. And now we're trying to organize them in a way that everybody can access them and we can uh, keep them updated. Uh, So that's, that's really an important part of what we do is having process. Well, and as you have, I would say, spent into that culture building, both in brand development, the facility there, your vision on culture. Uh, and like you said, it's like something that, you know, makes you want to come to work every day. But is there an example for you that connects that back to an ROI that you really see the the value of this kind of investment in developing a facility like you did? Or talk to me a little bit about how you measure that success. So one of the things we did do, I mean, back when we did that original brand survey, we we kind of established a baseline. We had like practically zero brand awareness. And we have seen that continuously grow because we 
every year or two, a couple of years, more or less, we, we do a survey just about how many people recognize our brand, both unaided and aided. And we've seen that grow continuously. I wouldn't say we're a national brand, but that's kind of one of my all around goals at some point. How do you know when that happens? That's when you're like over 50%. People can say, oh, Wish Farms, that's a, that's a berry brand. In the Southeast, we're probably over 20, 25%. So yeah, it, it's continuously growing. But the branding is, I think, important to our future success and continued success is having that brand recognition, people looking for our berries, customers, you know, recognizing that, that we are a brand that people remember. We're very focused on, on flavor. That's, in my mind, the most important thing, not just on blueberries, but on all our berries. That's, uh, we're not perfect, and we're trying to always get better through genetics and other means. But flavor, to me, is the most important thing, because getting the consumer to buy it once is one thing. But getting them to buy it over and over again is how you, I believe you achieve it, is having good-tasting fruit. So we're going to take a quick break here for our marketing boost. We'll be right back to this conversation in a moment. But for now, here's USHBC NABC Vice President of Marketing and Communications, Jennifer Sparks. Thanks, Casey. As we continue to plan for National Blueberry Month, I just wanted to note a reminder about the voluntary opportunity that was presented at the recent USHBC Promotions Committee meeting about how the industry can engage with USHBC's partnership with No Kid Hungry and about the important deadline coming up on March 30th. Throughout the month of July, USHBC will be unleashing the power of blueberries nationwide. It will be an epic celebration as we inspire fans to show how blueberries give them a boost. We'll connect blueberries to the best parts of everyday life, driving engagement and demand. Even better, it's all for a good cause. The month-long celebration, which will include media relations, social media activations, and experiential marketing, also features a partnership with No Kid Hungry. As part of that effort, we're giving the blueberry industry the voluntary opportunity to donate fresh or frozen blueberries to summer distribution centers across the country for kids in need. If you are interested in participating through a voluntary product donation, by March 30th, go to ushbc.org slash donate, complete the form, and No Kid Hungry will then be in touch based on fulfillment and distribution logistics. Again, that's ushbc.org slash donate. No Kid Hungry has a lot of logistical parts to move on their end with their nationwide summer distribution centers, which is why we need to garner the industry interest early, and No Kid Hungry will contact you from there. On our end, once we know from No Kid Hungry how things are progressing, we'll be able to add to our messaging for National Blueberry Month. Wouldn't it be great to be able to say we are feeding kids from coast to coast? And USHBC will be recognizing the donating companies to the industry and trade press as part of our reporting on the program as a whole. That feels like a win-win-win to me. March 30th, ushbc.org slash donate. You know what to do. This has been your Marketing Boost. Thank you for your partnership. As together, we inspire the world to grab a boost to blue. Casey, back to you. Thanks, Jenny. Now back to today's episode with Gary Wisnatsky. Part of what our audience uh, at the Business of Blueberries tunes into, we have these tech episodes, and a lot of people like to hear about what's happening out there for potential tech for blueberries, whether that could be pollination, um, but in particular, harvesting has been a, a really popular episode talking about harvesters, machine harvest for fresh. Um, but 
when we met with you, when we were touring through your facility, you talked about an innovation in strawberries. And I thought we'd just spend a little time here talking about what it is that you personally have been working on to machine harvest strawberries. So um, back in the late 2000 timeframe, it was becoming more and more evident to me about the labor shortages and the fact that that we were having a big problem. You know, we were having less and less workers show up in our fields. And in the case of some of our strawberry crops, we were abandoning fields early in the season because we didn't have enough workers to pick everything and get across the fields in the time frame we needed to. It had me go and try to figure out what was going on, which became evident to me that the workforce that we were having come to us was mostly from Mexico at the time and still is. But what became evident was it was a demographic problem that we were experiencing. You know, the birth rates in Mexico went from 6.7 in the 1960s down to about 2.9 by 1990. And that um, declining birth rates, the same curve we were seeing in the fields of workers not showing up. I mean, the diminishing amount of people that were coming here, I don't think it had anything to do with border security or walls or anything else it was all about demographics and today mexico is pretty close to the u.s um, birth rates so the fertility rates they're almost mirroring the u.s but what that tells me uh, you know this problem we're experiencing is not going to get better it's, it's only going to get worse and when i realized that around 2013 i said my god we better try to figure out some way to get our crops picked with machines because we're not going to have people to continue doing this and especially we're not going to have the young people which picking berries is kind of a young person's game it's not for us old folks uh, so i joined forces with a robotics engineer his name is uh, bob pitzer we co-founded harvest crew robotics and at the time i realized it was going to be a pretty expensive venture and i was going to have to get other folks involved to, to raise money and it wasn't going to be just something i was going to keep for wish farms as a competitive advantage when i realized that i, I said well if i'm going to have to go out and raise money i should go out to our industry and uh, ask them so we we actually have about 70 percent of the u.s industry on strawberries on our cap table this is a highly collaborative venture in a lot of ways and the least of which not is uh, the investments from uh, other growers and marketers some of the big folks here in florida and in california invested so we are closing in now on a commercial um picker we don't yet have commercial machines out but we expect uh, and hope that we'll have uh, some built this summer that'll be out in florida fields next year picking strawberries the goal has been from the beginning actually a few different things one is that we weren't going to drastically change uh, how growers grew berries. We didn't want to drastically change their business model of how they paid to get the berries picked. So we're harvesting as a service um, business model, not a not selling growers machines. And then, yeah, the other thing was we were looking to develop something that could match up with human pickers. Because some other people that are working on strawberry picking machines, they're, they're basically marketing them as a harvesting aid and i said we can't declare a success until we have parity with human pickers because going in and picking just some of the berries that are out there is not really good enough 
because then you have to have people come in behind the machines and clean up what it misses. And I think it becomes even more expensive to get the crop harvested. So we are closing in on, on parity with humans, you know, matching up and getting the clearance rates that people get when they go through the field. So once we have that achieved, which we're, we're closing in on now, we, we should begin commercializing this thing. Well, in all that experience there for strawberries, and that sounds exciting, and I'm sure lots of people are going to be interested in seeing, you know, for the same reasons that got you started, you know, the labor situation isn't a was, it still is and continues to be a, a difficulty for agriculture. But how has that experience in your mind translated to what you've seen in blueberries today? Where are we in the spectrum of innovation on being able to hand harvest blueberries with a machine? Are we missing something in what we've developed so far? I mean, when can we have Gary turn his attention to blueberry harvesting? I promise you once we finish this uh, strawberry project, I mean, this, these engineers, we've got a brilliant team of guys there, and um, they've got some really creative out-of-the-box ideas. So I, I'm, I'm sure we, we're going to turn our attention to other crops and blueberries. It certainly would be a, a prime target for me. You know, the blueberry industry is ahead of the game in terms of, you know, being able to mechanically harvest, although, you know, for fresh pack, as we all know, it's a little less than ideal when, you know, you're getting low pack outs because of, um, you know, damage to the fruit. So the one thing I, I did learn about this strawberry project was it's highly iterative. You don't just put a machine out there the first time and, and it works just right. I mean, we've we've had tons of failures. I like to say we're failing our way to success. It takes time, but I think the one thing that would be encouraging that maybe the timeline may be a little bit faster than it's taken us going on close to 10 years now to get from the you know beginning of this project to a commercial machine. But there's a lot of things in technology that are moving a lot faster now. Price of chips, the cameras, and as long as we can get our chips <laughs> with this um, supply chain issues. But yeah, that's that's one of the limitations right now that we're we're facing is um, making sure we can get everything we need to get these machines built this summer. But that's the encouraging thing I would say is that technology's been moving fast. It is going to take time and a lot of money. I can promise you that. It's, it's not a cheap endeavor to, to do, but if you get enough people behind it and get enough investment from in the industry, I, I think it, you know it could be achieved in, in less than that 10-year time frame. But the thing I, I think growers in the U.S. need to realize, and I made this point at the uh, meeting we had last week, was this um, situation we're in right now, we're relying very heavily on guest workers, the H-2A labor program in the U.S. And I tell folks all the time, this is a short-term solution for a long-term problem. If you look at those demographics, going back to that again, when you see went from 2.9 to 2.2 now, it's not too much of a stretch to think that in the very near future, Mexico, where our labor has been coming from, is going to be a net importer of labor. They're not going to be exporting labor to the U.S. in the numbers that they have. So I think that's something that should be a wake-up call for all North American growers not to expect this affordable labor coming from across the border for very much longer, even though you know the H-2A labor program is, is working right now and we're getting by but um, it's, it's time to start working on something like, because, like I said before, it's, it takes time to develop this technology. 
So maybe there's some folks already working on some ideas for blueberries, but I'm not aware of it if they are. Well, and, and what are those some things that you're suggesting that they be thinking about? Are you talking about obviously machine harvesting for fresh, the level of ability to get there? Yeah, getting some people to step up in the industry and make the investments that are required to put together a group, a team, a, a company that's you know, to back somebody and to um, find these solutions and find the ways that this is going to be done in the future. Because I, I believe the hand harvesting is um, going to be a thing of the past in most of our lifetimes. Yeah. Well, this has been fascinating, not just being able to sit down with you one-on-one -on -one here and, and be able to share this with the rest of our audience, but just the time we've had to tour your facility, get to know your team, you know, JC's on our board, really gotten to know him and, and appreciate his leadership. So what you've done in a hundred years, and I know your tenure for, you know, kind of managing the company hasn't been that whole time, <laughs> unless you're going to say otherwise. 48, 48 uh, of it. 48 years. Um, <laughs> but it's just remarkable. I mean, the footprint and the fingerprint, I should say, that you're putting on our industry. I know I thought about that as, as we left, just what an impression it left on everybody who came through. And, and I got to imagine that, you know, buyers that come by to see your operation feel the same way. So you, you've really set a standard there, kind of a shining example of what what can be in both team culture, in our industry, and obviously in the case of the business of Blueberry. So thank you for being a part of the show today. Awesome. Thank you. Appreciate it. Well, I certainly appreciated the time we had with Gary today. I couldn't help but invite him on the Business of Blueberry podcast after the opportunity only a few of us really had relative to the rest of the industry to visit with his team, tour his facility, and hear some of the stories of what I believe is an example of a very humble beginning before they've become uh, what we all saw and certainly what you heard today. It really is an impressive story, and a 100-year company is something to be celebrated. So congratulations to Wish and Gary and the family and the team there uh, for their success over 100 years. Certainly an accomplishment in and of itself. The things that I think he shared are things that I hope everybody can take away from what it means to grow over 100 years, but certainly as a company, you know, you heard him talk specifically about the growth over the last 10 years and the things that they've had to do in order to address that growth. And so process, as he described, is a key part of their organization. And as a culture, you can see where the intersection of his creative and his feelings about becoming that national brand uh, really helped to set a pattern of expectation for his team. And, and that facility was something that everyone should have a chance to walk through. And again, I, I appreciate Gary's invitation to our audience. Uh, if you're in Plant City, it's a stop that you won't want to miss. Uh, I also appreciated just the connections between his experience in strawberries, the genetics, even the, the labor experience uh, that created the innovation that he's developing for strawberries is true for blueberries. And uh, kind of maybe we're a little bit behind a curve there in experience, but you can just see the parallels. And I thought that was important to pull through in today's conversation. So, well, that's it for episode 91. Just a quick note regarding the Grab a Boost of Blue program. 
This is something that I would encourage all of our industry to be a part of. It's something that USHBC has created for the industry's use and benefit. So it's a compliment to your program. It's a compliment to your brand. And I was excited to see how Wish was using it on their pack, on a billboard. They had it on their screens when we were welcomed in. Uh, it's for everybody's use. And I just wanted to make sure that those of you listening who aren't a current licensee of Grab a Boost of Blue recognize that that's an opportunity afforded to you. So you just have to visit our website, ushbc.org forward slash license dash agreement. Again, that's ushbc.org forward slash license dash agreement. And just fill out that simple application. Uh, Jenny will see that and you will become a licensee of the Grab a Boost of Blue program. It's exciting to see so many of our industry taking advantage of that benefit, but one that everyone should take advantage if you haven't yet already. So thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with more innovation, collaboration, family, and hard work right here on The Business of Blueberries. I think I was walking through sales and one of your team members grabbed me and said, hey, you know that red phone in there, that goes straight to the White House. (laughs) Right there, just go ahead, you could pick it up.